Hey everyone, welcome to the Habitation Podcast. I pray that this message today impact your life and ultimately draw you closer to the Lord. I want to continue today, uh, we'll call it part two of, I don't think that there's a possibility of creating a title for whatever Corey did last night. Um, <laughs> he said some stuff that maybe just wanted to do the old school start. We should just do laps tonight, just start going crazy. You know, we need to break out of our shells. Silence belongs in the grave. We need something to erupt inside of a generation. But anyway, so, uh, but I want to do part two in a sense of whatever that was and and even expand a little bit on what he talked about, our pursuit, who we are. But I just, I want to start with a story because I think it's important. Now, all of you from Dallas, all those that have been to Habitation, you've heard me talk about this before. So just pretend you have, you're hearing it again for the first time. Uh, for the sake of everybody else. But it's really important that you understand so that we continue this weekend with the right posture of our pursuit. And our desire is not, you know, when you hear Corey or you hear what we're going after, our desire is not to bash the bride. We're looking for her. We're longing to find that remnant, that, you know, like they were singing about, that the lamb may receive the reward of his suffering. Like, are we the bride that he can look at and say, that is the reward of my suffering? Or are we just saying, Lord Jesus, we give you our life because he's a fire escape out of hell, right? But I didn't marry my wife because she had a nice house. No, she didn't have anything when we got married. She had student loans. Thank God for her parents that paid them off. We love you, Cameron and Becky. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for no debt. Amen. So... I got married to my wife because I fell in love with her. I got married to her because, you know, you fall in love and you, and like Corey was talking about last night, you just get stupid, man. You, you, you start wasting time going to bed way too late and spending money you don't have. And things just, all common sense and practicality goes out the window because you're in love, right? And so I, I'm all about being practical. I'm all about, you know, learning and teaching and all these things, but... There's, you know what the word practical means? It means that we have the ability to practice, but there's certain things in God you can't practice and apply. You surrender your way into it, right? And so there's this, this burning passion and desire in our hearts is, is that we would be a, com- a people, a community, not just to have events and conferences and plant another church in another corner, uh, but people that come as a remnant that have fallen in love, who are not waiting to get to heaven, but believe that the oil of heaven wants to drip off of us because we are stunned and in awe of who God is. Amen? And so that wasn't always my story. In 2017, it was December, I was working for a man by the name of Todd White, and I honor him and I love him, and uh, he's a huge part of my story. Uh, But I was working for this man, and, and, and at the time, you know, I started realizing, like, Everywhere we're going, we're seeing people healed and saved. I mean, most of the time I was just watching him do it. You know, like we would go to dinner and I never had hot food with Todd because he was always talking to the waiter and I'm hungry, but I don't want to be that guy that's like, you know, while he's casting a devil out of the waiter. So I just sit there and, and I would watch and I would think to myself, like, this is, this is a life, like this is real. And so we were seeing the power. We were seeing things happen. That, I mean, I'm not over-exaggerating when I say experiencing stewardess on airplanes manifesting devils and getting free. 
and him screaming down the aisle, it's okay, it's just a devil. I'm like, you act like this is normal to people. This isn't even normal in the church, unfortunately. My cousin makes a statement, you know, we don't see devils cast it out today. They might be enjoying the meeting. We gotta be really careful, really careful. Because they'll vibe with religion all day because religion put on the cross it wasn't the world. It was religion. It was the Pharisees. It was the Pharisaical order that thought they knew God, but really they were blind. We heard it last night. And so 2017, I thought I knew God. I thought that I had something figured out because I knew how to pray for someone and see their leg grow out. Or, you know, and, and you get so accustomed to it growing up. You know, my, my parents have been the most faithful pastors and parents in my opinion, the entire world. They're just better than yours. I'm sorry. That's just my opinion. And so faithful. And you grow up around miracles. You grow up. I, I remember, you know, when I was working for my uncle, I saw a tumor dissolve off somebody's neck. And you get ruined by this stuff, right? But, but you grow up around it and you're in the atmosphere of it and you're in his presence. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you become numb to the presence. And it can become works and motion and an equation called the anointing. And you can learn how to, how to muster it and turn it up. And you can sing the right song at the right time. You know, the one where, okay, I know the song now so I can lift my hands. You know, people don't know how to engage with the Lord unless they can control the situation. Right? So if I could just create an environment that was controlled and conducive, we can... We can work it, but really it's not truly anointed. We just are working on the emotions of the people and you know how to just make it happen and make it right. And, and you know how to pray the prayer. You know how to, you know, you don't say Jesus, you say Jesus. And it, and it works because people are, well, never mind. So anyway, um, so at the time we had already had resignation. I was worshiping at our, I was helping my mom lead worship and and going through the motions of growing up a pastor's son, but really deep down had no encounter with God. And so I remember, you know, at this point, I'm in full-time ministry, vocation. At this time in my life, I'm ministering, I'm preaching. We had actually already started Resonation. We started in 2014, never planned on being a church, never planned on having a conference, that's for sure. I mean, I, I, was, I would tell my dad growing up, I'm never gonna preach, never gonna be a pastor, I got an F in public speaking in high school. Pastor Gerardo was there to prove it was true. I hated it. I would shake. I didn't like people, you know, and I'm still growing in that area. So be patient with me. But, you know, I just, I just wanted normal. But I didn't really know what God wanted normal to become for me. So in 2017, I'm going through the motions. I know how to work it. I remember I was driving home from a meeting with Todd and, and Tom and I remember the street I was on, and I remember saying this, this to the Lord. It was December. I said, Lord, I, I feel like I don't even know how to pray. I mean, I know how to like repeat language, but I don't, I don't truly know how to talk to you. I really don't know truly how to engage with you, and I need you to teach me how to pray. And I've always been fascinated at the fact that the disciples, they saw the dead raised, they saw devils cast out. They saw a man. I mean, consider the presence on a man that he could walk up to you while you're fishing. And in those days, the fishing wasn't just recreational. This was generational business of a family. And a man walk up to you and say, follow me, not tell you where you're going, 
tell you nothing about himself and just say, follow me and have such a presence about his life that you drop the nets of a generational business and just start following him. Like, what is it about Jesus that he, I mean, I one time had a leader tell me to be a good leader, you gotta be easy to follow. And I thought, you don't know Jesus. Because he's very difficult to follow. So much so he says, have you counted the cost? Right? So I'm, I am, I've always been stirred by the disciples that they were so moved by what was on his life, they dropped their nets and they followed him. And after all they had seen, all they experienced, they, the only question you really see them asking him in scripture is teach us to pray. I want you to think about this. Dead raised, I mean, he interrupted funerals. He's just walking down the road and a, and a procession of a funeral comes by and he just happens to be there and the, the kid comes up out of the casket. And that was just every day for them. I mean, they got to rub elbows in proximity to the one that holds all things together by the word of his power. Who all things were made through him, for him, Colossians tells us, and in him all things consists. He was the one that from the beginning, he was the power that causes planets, the book of Job tells us, planets to hang on nothing. What kind of power is that? Right, and all that power, all that glory becomes a seed inside of a woman and starts hanging out among men. And after all that the men saw, the power, the glory, the majesty, I mean, the water supported this man's feet when he walked on them. After all of the wonder, he didn't even have to get near Lazarus. He just calls his name. He comes walking out. He's still wrapped in this stuff. After all that wonder and glory, what they were most fascinated by was his encounter with his father. That they would say, talk to us about your prayer life. And so I was, I've always been moved by that. So I said, Lord, I don't, I read about Jesus. He's always sneaking away to a mountain. He's always going to his father. What was that like? And I hear a voice from the back of my car say, William, now you're asking me the right questions. And as God is my witness, I'm sitting in the front seat. It was like somebody opened the side door of my car and sat down in the seat next to me. And it was so real. I thought if I look right, I'm going to see a Jewish man. I mean, that was just... I know that that might seem silly to you, but I don't know if you ever have experienced that before where you're in prayer and you're like, he's so here, I'm gonna see something in my open eyes, so I'm just gonna keep my eyes closed because I'm afraid. But he just became very real to me in that moment. And I know that he's in me, but the scriptures say that he will be in me and with me, right? And so there's manifestations to who God is. And, and so I went home, I ran to my closet and said hi to my wife and my oldest son was born at the time and I ran into the room and I heard the Lord speak to me and say, you have never built a home with me. Now, up to this point in my life, I am in full-time ministry. I'm seeing the sick healed. I'm seeing people saved. I knew how to articulate and preach at this, at this point in time. And, but the Lord's coming to me and he's saying, but I don't know who you are. And I thought about Matthew chapter seven. It says many, everyone say many. That, that word should scare us in Matthew 7. Many on that day will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at all these things we've done in your name. We cast all devils in your name, heal the sick in your name. Look at all these, look at our accolades. Look at the ministry we built. Look at our numbers. Lord, we saw a million soul harvest and we can hear God look back at us and say, but I don't know you. 
And we see the value of heaven in that moment of what heaven is looking for is people that have a home with God when no one's watching. In other words, all those things aren't bad, but, but at the end of the verse in Matthew 7, it says, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wait, you're telling me that all of those things is works of lawlessness? That doesn't make sense. No, no. Doing these things outside of knowing him makes you no different than a Pharisee. You're just a really powerful orphan. And so I had this encounter with God where I realized I could say all the right language, I could sing all the right songs, and I had the gifting and the ability to be able to do it, and God comes to me and says, I'm not impressed. I want a home with you. And, and so he led me to Psalms 91, and I got captivated, captivated by God reading, those that dwell in the secret place of the Most High will abide will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And that word dwell in Hebrew, it means those that marry God in secret. Those that marry him in secret, he will abide over you like a shadow all the days of your life. And it goes on and it says, he will keep you from stumbling. He will keep you from stumbling over the rock. And it says, why? Because you have set your love upon me. And all of a sudden, all these things that were important to me, I've got to hit this mark and do this for God and accomplish this for God. It all went out the window and I started looking at him. And I became more effective when I started looking at him. And this would lead, this, this would lead to, we were meeting in a little coffee shop in the DFW Metroplex in Texas. And it would lead to us gathering in a coffee shop and seeing miracles and beginning to see signs and wonders and all we would do is get together with a group of 20 of us and weep and cry at the reality that the God of the universe wants to dwell in my bedroom with me and from this this vision was born of what would it be like to have a house for the Lord not just individually but corporately and I started realizing wait I'm finding this in Psalms 132 remember David and all his afflictions, and he makes God this vow. Mike Bickle says, it's the vow that changed history. The vow that changed history of God, I want to find a resting place for you. And so this began to build, and this desire in a group of people began to be provoked inside of us of this obsession with God's presence. And I had rarely seen churches that were more about God's presence than it was about the people. And you go to places, and, and we've got to be honest. I'm just, I told you last night, we are declaring war on religion this weekend, okay? So just have patience, but the reality is, is maybe if you're offended, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit wanting to shake some things up inside of us because the longing of God's heart is he wants to know you. Mike Pickle says the judgments of God is that which comes to remove anything that hinders love. We invite the wrath and judgments of God to come and examine us. We should be hungry. This is what made David different. He would say, search me, O God, and know me, try me. See if you find any anxiety in me. He invited the wrath of God. That word wrath means violent, passion driven by jealousy. He is jealous for a bride to say, Lord, we want to say no to all the other lovers. We are asking you to come and remove what you have to remove. He comes to Jeremiah and he says, listen, Jeremiah, I'm going to send you to a group of people. This has been encouraging me for Tennessee. I'm going to send you to a group of people. And I don't want you to look at them when you minister because you ain't going to like their faces. 
That's what it says. Read Jeremiah 1. He says, don't look at their faces because they're going to want to kill you. They ain't going to like you and you're going to mess with their tradition. He says, but don't look at them. And Jeremiah goes, I'm way too young for this. He goes, so don't tell me you're too young for this. He says, where I tell you to go, you're going to go. God touched the mouth of Jeremiah and he gives him this command. I want you to root out, tear down, and then build and plant. Right? So here we are, stage one of Tennessee, rooting out and tearing down because we need a foundation to be able to build upon. Amen? And so if you would join in with me today, not take it personally, but we're all going to minister into the atmosphere together. (laughs) I have to tell you something funny. So last night I said, Corey, how'd you feel up there? What can I expect tomorrow? He said, man, I was fighting demons. That's what he said to me last night after the meeting. I said, what are you talking about? I said, it felt great to us. He said, I'm not talking about the room. He said, that room is electric. It was on fire. He said, I'm talking about what's in the air. I'm talking about what's in the atmosphere. A demon called comfort. You don't need to burn for the Lord. You don't need to have zeal. Just have wisdom. You don't need zeal. And you can, and he said, I felt like I was pounding up against it. So let's make a covenant together that starting now, we're all going to join in together. That it's not going to be this, but it's going to be this. Let's, let's speak it into the atmosphere. I don't care if you've heard this a hundred times. Let's lean forward in the spirit and say, Lord, we will not be satisfied until we walk out these doors and we feel your glory dripping on Main Street. Religion hates radical. It hates it. Because religion only receives that which it can control and understand. That's why religion doesn't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Just throw them in the corner. Put them in a cage. We'll tell them you have an hour to do what you want to do. As if we control him. You have, and you can do it in three services, but 45 minutes each. So we're going to let the dove out. Amen? Okay. So we began to build, and, and, and what we've seen the Lord do is amazing, and we're excited, but we're starting over. And we're going to start in square one, which is God is longing, listen, for a people he can call home. And I want you to take notes today. I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to learn today because there is a, uh, a cancer that is in the church that's a synagogue model that has entered into the house of God. And God is going to destroy it. And according to Acts 15, 16, he's rebuilding the tabernacle of David in the earth so that the world may seek the Lord. And this tabernacle is a symbolism of God's grace. We're going to get into it. But we have to start at square one. We've got to tear down the religious system that's been built and become normal. And we're all okay just going to church. We go to lunch. We watch football. And we're satisfied. And we need some Holy Ghost divine disruption and discontentment. I'm really, I'm genuinely praying. I, I left last night. I don't, raise your hand if you felt the same way. You hear someone like Corey preach and you feel divinely discontent after. And you start examining yourself and you go, I want that groan inside of my heart. I have news. You can have as much as you want this weekend. And not just this weekend. You can have as much as you want every day of your life. But how much are you willing to reach after God? He says, those that draw near to me and James, I will draw near to them. He's looking for people that aren't just going to sit and soak, but reach. I'm not against soaking. You go for it in your bathtubs. I'm good with that. I love 
sitting silent before God, but the Lord is raising a groan in a people that's saying we aren't satisfied with where we are. And when I read about God, he's inexhaustible. Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. We'll never just be like, God, I'm figured out. No, there's always got to be this need inside of our hearts through brokenness of God, we need more. Amen? So you don't have to turn there, but I just want you to hear it. I'm gonna just throw some areas at you that I would encourage you, especially if, if you are planting with us, that you would study these, that you would make this a part of who you are, because this is a part of our DNA. In Exodus 33, the Lord comes to Moses and he gives him, he gives him an opportunity. And the opportunity, and, and now at this point in the scriptures, the Lord is, is really sick and tired of, of the children of Israel. He, he, these people are complainers. I mean, he opened the sea for them. He gives, gives them bread by day. I mean, there's a cloud by day, fire by night. Imagine, like, you don't have to make any decision. You just follow a pillar of cloud of fire. And they're still, like, whining, right? It shows you the need of the Holy Spirit. But, but these people, because they were so in bondage in Egypt in their own minds, they couldn't leave Egypt. And so... The Lord comes to Moses in Exodus 33, and he's basically like, listen, I'm sick of these people. And Moses, the people that you brought out, and I love it, Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't bring these people out. You told me to bring your people out. And there's this change in Exodus 33 where for the first time, he no longer calls them, let my people go. He says, the people that you brought out. Think about the relationship between Moses and God. God's like, I'm changing my mind. Lord, I thought you don't change. But it seems like with Moses, he's back and forth of, I do not like them and fine. <laughs> so Moses is like, uh-uh. Says he talked to him face to face like a friend. And so in Exodus 33, he's like, I'm, I'm done. These are your people. And he says, here's what I'm gonna do, Moses. I'm gonna send you into the promised land. And I'm gonna give you an angel and I'm gonna, you're gonna destroy all of the ites. They're all gonna be defeated before you. And, and you're gonna walk into the promised land and you're gonna have success and there's gonna be an angel. But Moses was hearing something and he wanted to hear something different. But what he didn't hear is, is that God was going. He kept hearing an angel, an angel. I'll, I'll give you an angel and I'll give you success. I'll give you gifting and I'll give you a mega church. I'll give you gifting, I'll give you a big ministry, I'll give you gifting and a billion dollars. And Moses comes back to the Lord and he says, no, 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 no. If you don't go, we're not going. If your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. We're not interested in the promised land without you in it. In other words, we'd rather be in the wilderness with you than the promise without you. And he was so resolute in this response. He goes, Lord, it is only your presence that distinguishes us. There's nothing else. There's nothing else in the world, in the earth, that distinguishes us from every other nation other than your presence. So if your presence doesn't go, we're not going. I mean, the only difference between what we're doing here and a political rally is the presence of God. The only difference between us gathering here and a, and a country club you go to in wherever, in your neighborhood, the only difference is that there's a mark called God is here. And how many places do we go? And God's not really there, but we've got rallies every Sunday, right? And Moses is like, Lord, I'm not doing it unless you're with me. I'm not interested in pursuing. I'm not interested in no promise. I'm not, I would rather 
be thirsty in the wilderness with God than in the promise and success without him. And so Moses makes this priority and it so moves God's heart that the Lord says, because of you, Moses. Like what if he came to a remnant of people and he said, because of you people, I'm gonna land on a whole city. I mean, he, Abraham is going back and forth with the Lord about Sodom and where he says, what if you find 10? Okay, fine. Just 10 guys, like we don't need hundreds. We just need a couple of crazy ones. Just a couple of freaks that are, that are open to poking the bear of religion and saying, bring it on. We don't care. We have this backing called God is here. And it distinguishes. And it doesn't matter how good the sound. It isn't, you know, our live stream cut out last night. And I'm thinking, it's, it's welcome to resignation. No offense. Just always something. But, but the mark is not quality of production. The mark has to be he came. I don't know what happened. I just know that God was there. And I left with something shaking on the inside of me. And I just didn't feel right going home and turning on the TV and forgetting about what happened. I was drawn to my knees. So Moses makes this priority. And it's because of this man's response that the next generation gets to walk into promise. Because a father was unwilling to waver. A father was unwilling to accept opportunity and success without the presence of the Lord. And so I believe in this hour, there is this dividing line. There's this dividing line between not only individuals that know him, but communities that know him. There's this dividing line where I don't know if you can feel it. I don't know if you can see it in the culture, but, but do you realize that like the world is trying to come after our children? And nobody wants to talk about it because nobody wants to be political, but you realize guys can't be girls. You realize that, right? Okay, help us, Jesus. You realize that on this street, there's like, there was a pride thing parade and something was voted in their favor. And I'm not saying Republican, Democrat. I'm saying we are dealing with an evil thing and a godly thing. And Christians are just in their churches hiding happy. And no one cares. No one says anything, but our kids are suicidal and confused about their gender. Do you know why they're confused? You know, it's the same attack from the enemy. It's always been. He came to Eve. He said, don't you want to be like God? He's coming and messing with her identity. If she would have said, I'm already like God. We would have never, man would have never fallen, but he confused her about who she already was. The devil is not smart enough to create new tactics. He doesn't have the ability to create, so he just uses the same nonsense over and over again, and he comes to a generation, and he confuses them about who they are. When the scriptures tell us you are the image and the likeness of God, that he who knew no sin, listen, became the sin offering so that you and I can become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you know what the implication of that is? And in the church, we're trying to figure out if we're sinners or not. Like as if the blood worked halfway. I got to wait till heaven. <laughs> you realize he came, right? And when he came, his whole kingdom came with him. And the proclamation was the kingdom of God is near. In other words, it's at hand. And so we're confused in our generation and we're just trying to be polite and kind and not offend it. We just need to start offending people. You know why? Because our kids are growing up in a world that's trying to take them and not in my house. I, I talk about this a lot that I, I love in, I believe it's Genesis 35. Rachel is having her last child. 
Jacob, I'm sorry, her last child, Benjamin. And as she's dying, she says his name will be Benoni, which means son of sorrow. And it says, Jacob, imagine, this is the last encounter with his wife, the one that he loved, Jacob and Rachel. His last encounter with his wife is don't listen to her. His name will not be Benoni. His name's gonna be Benjamin. Benoni means son of sorrow. Benjamin means son of favor, power, son of my right hand. And it says a father stood up in the middle and said, the generation's not going this trajectory. The generation's going this trajectory. And we need leaders, fathers in homes, mothers in homes to take their place, exit a system and say, our kids are not going down this religious nonsense path where we can get up and and we say, everybody, listen, let me just make it clear. Everybody's welcome here. If you want to come in gay, come in gay, but you ain't leaving gay. You want to come in with all, and I know people are like, oh my God, he's talking about real things. Like how far have we gone in the church that we're really big, we're massive and extremely irrelevant. We're just another seven mountain. No, there's one mountain called the kingdom of God, and it's going to flood the earth, listen, with glory as waters cover the sea. We just want an hour and a half and go home, but our kids are dying, and a generation's going astray, and darkness is becoming normal. But I read, arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Deep darkness will cover the earth. Come on, Isaiah 60. But not over you. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take us standing up, taking our place, and saying, you can come in as you are, but I promise you're going you're gonna to encounter this man. And he's going to ruin your whole life in the most beautiful way you could ever imagine. And the things you used to desire, you just won't desire anymore. Let me ask you a question. How many of you got free from drugs and alcohol? Raise your hand. Look at that. Okay. That's a supernatural. That's not, I, you didn't get talked into the gospel. You encountered God into the gospel, right? Right? And you could never go back because it's real to him. He encountered a man that took a desire from him. How many times do you hear, one day I tried it, I tried to put the needle in, it just didn't work. How many times do you hear that testimony? Right? This isn't like, a practical thing like let's self-help and life coach you into it. No, no, it's a man walks into the room and he breaks needles in half and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And not only am I gonna heal you and deliver you and then keep you, I'm gonna actually make you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm gonna make you as clean as me. Man, I'm gonna make you as pure as me. And the church is telling you, you're a disgust. Somehow, from the time you got out of bed to the time you brushed your teeth, you were a disgusting sitter, somehow. But I read something completely different in scripture. And you know what I'm gonna tell my kids? As he is, this is what I read. So are we in this world. Not one day when we die and go to heaven. It actually says in this world. In other words, hey, my son, William, when you go to school, you're gonna go to school like Jesus. Right? So we need some fathers to stand up, stop being quiet and passive. I think there's a huge problem in society. I'm just going to go for everything. You know, it's our first service. And I figure, listen, I figure this. If we grow to 50, then we've grown. All right. I think we have a huge problem in society called passive men. (laughs) 
wimpy Christians. Help us, Jesus. Not saying what needs to be said, declaring what needs to be declared. Do you realize that you are protectors? I wasn't planning to talk about any of this, but you know, whatever. Protectors of the seed. Come on, keepers of the flame of the next generation. You know why we are the way we are? Because of these two people sitting right here in the front row. You know why? Because he would stand up and say crazy stuff. And he'd say, if everybody leaves, you're stuck with me. <laughs> and I'd watch this man run out. I remember, so we grew up in Florida to be hurricanes. My dad would run outside, half his clothes on. And he's screaming at the sky. He believes the Bible that as he is, so are we in this world that I've given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. You speak to the storm. He, I mean, the disciples are scared out of their mind. Jesus talks to the wind and he looks at them. He says, what's wrong with you guys? What are you so afraid of? And we watch, we'd watch hurricanes just leave. So as a kid, I'm thinking my dad controls the weather. I, I've, I legit believed that he controlled the weather. I just have one funny story because we need fathers, right? And so we went to Chicago. I, we went on a ministry trip with him and, and uh, we grew up in Florida, so we had never seen snow. And so I wanted to see snow. All of us wanted to see snow. So I said to my dad, I'm eight years old. I said, I need you to do the weather thing and make it snow. And, uh, and, and he kind of like whispers to my mom and and I don't think he believed about him what we believed about him, you know? And so he kind of prays this prayer of like, okay, God, let it snow. But I knew he didn't mean it. And he grew up in Canada, so he didn't want snow. And, uh, and so he said, and it didn't snow. And no joke, I was angry at my dad. True story. I mean, I was mad at him because he didn't make it snow. And he's telling me like, well, son, I, I can't control the weather. And I'm like, but yeah, you can so you preach. <laughs> and so he goes, I'll give you anything else you want. I'll buy you anything. I'll never forget. I'll buy you anything you want. I'll take you anywhere. What do you want? And I said, fine. I want to meet Michael Jordan. We were in Chicago. <laughs> I love the Bulls and I love Michael Jordan. And he was like, oh. and so my mom hit him and said, he believes you pray and mean it. So we prayed this childlike prayer in the car about meeting Michael Jordan and I was excited because now I'm going to meet Michael Jordan. And we went to a restaurant that night and there's a Porsche sitting outside. And it says MJ on the back. Now I know this is silly, but I believe this crazy stuff, right? It says MJ. My dad asked the, the hotel guy at the hotel, is that just a question? Is that Michael Jordan's car? Yeah, he's in a meeting. He's coming down. He'll be down any minute. Just if you guys wait here, you could say hi to him. And I said hi to him and I got a thumbs up for Michael Jordan's greatest day of my life. And, and, uh, and I went to my dad and I said, thank you. True story. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you. So, <laughs> you know, so you grow up and, and you get smart. You go to church and that childlike thing leaves. You can't enter into the kingdom unless you become like a child. My children believe everything I say. And they know as long as dad and mom are around, they're safe. And they have endless supply. They never think about toilet paper ever. 
They don't know how much anything costs. They think that I have all the money in the world. And you know what? Because that's what it means to be a father. You carry weight that they don't have to carry. You pay bills that they don't even know about. You labor and you give of yourself so that they can carry something into the next generation. But we don't, but we don't care enough. And so we just are bringing them into our religious systems going through our religious motions and what a generation needs is fathers and mothers that are not passive, that stand up in the middle of a generation and say, your, your trajectory is not sorrow. Your trajectory is power, right? It, I mean, Deuteronomy, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says to the children of Israel, the complaining ones, he said, you said your kids would be victims, but I say they're gonna inherit the promise. And I prophesy, how many of you have kids in here? Lift your hands. Your kids will not be victims. I don't care if they're home, not home. They're coming home in Jesus' name. Your kids are gonna carry promise into the next generation. But they, you know what? They need fathers and mothers that begin to burn. They're gonna raise the dead when they see you trying. It's the last time you even tried. So there's this dividing line for the sake of the next generation of who knows him and who doesn't. Are we just having religious activities and church services devoid of God's power. Do you know that the credentials of the early church was miracles? They would say, if you don't believe us, at least believe the works we do. We can't say that today. We're debating about if miracles are even still for today. And because men's weakness, we created theology around men's weakness. But God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, still wanting to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, and he's looking for some people to do it through, but we're too busy fighting each other. So God's coming to secret places like closets, in bedrooms, people that aren't in ministry, but in the workplace. You know, like you can go to the send a hundred times and lift your shoes, but why would God trust you with the borders of a nation if he can't trust you with the borders of a cubicle? If he can't trust you with the borders of your house with your kids, why would he send you to the nations? And let's start in this place of God, we want to learn how to talk to you. We want to learn how to have communion with you. We want to learn how to move your heart. And I want my kids to wake up every morning and know, where is Bubba? That's what they call me. Where is Bubba? He's with the Lord. Can you guys turn to Matthew 9? And on our way there, I want you to, to hear this. There is this side of God's nature called the rock of offense. And before we get into Matthew 9, I want you to understand something about the Lord. That you might know him as being the picture on the wall, the blonde, blue-eyed man that is holding the lammy. But there's this side, and he can be that, that's, that's good. But he wasn't blonde. He probably didn't have blue eyes. He was a very Jewish-looking man. Probably my height, to be honest. I'm just saying. <laughs> there was this side of the Lord that he would premeditate making whips. He would walk into the temple with a whip like Indiana Jones and swing it at things. We forget in John 2 that he gets baptized, listen, in John chapter one, and he sees the Holy Spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove. 
And the Holy Spirit, it says, came upon Jesus and remained. He comes up out of the water. He hears these words. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And right after that, in John 2, he says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to church. And he goes to the temple. He goes to his father's house. And what he sees in his father's house is merchandise. What he sees in his father's house is he sees doves inside of cages. The Greek word is used there is pigeon, but it's the same Greek word as the dove that came upon him. And so at one instance, he sees a dove flying and remaining upon him. Then he goes to church and he sees a dove inside of a cage. And he starts flipping tables, releasing the dove and swinging a whip around. And I can't even imagine what the disciples are thinking. They just started following him. And his first mark of ministry is I'm gonna flip everything upside down. There's a way that God works and there's a side of his nature driven by jealousy called I will be a rock of offense. Any genuine move of God, any genuine move, you're gonna have people that are happy, you're gonna have people that are confused and you're gonna have people that are angry. Acts chapter two says the Holy Spirit came and it wasn't just everyone was excited about it because he's a rock of offense. The Holy Spirit came and says some were amazed, some were perplexed, some were confused out of their minds. And then the Pharisees, of course, they were jealous. Chapter five. Genuine moves of God come and they shake up everything. The scriptures tell us he's gonna come and he's gonna shake up the heavens and the earth. And what will be left is a, is a bald burning fire. In other words, he's gonna shake up everything until all the stuff that can't remain leaves. The way that God is, is he says, listen, let the wheats and the tares grow together. And we're all crying out for harvest, but do you realize harvest is also the greatest time of separation? We're crying out for harvest, but he says, at harvest, separate the wheats from the tares. And you can tell by what's happening in the world that we are in a time in the church where he's coming to the church and he's separating the wheats from the tares. It's not to get on one side. Our longing should be all of those people that are tares, tell them to be wheats. Our longing shouldn't be, well, let's not offend anyone. Our longing should be, no, 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 you are a bride and you are supposed to be, listen, adorned for your husband in holy garments. Our job as leaders, as pastors, as husbands and fathers and coworkers and business leaders is to put the garment on people, the right garment, and tell them to change if they have to. So when the trumpet sounds, they're ready. If we love them, we would tell them. You see, the, listen, the narrative of the world is if you love them, you accept them. No, no, no. If you love them, you tell them. You don't, you don't, listen, we're watching a generation walk on this wide road called destruction. If you love them, tell them and put them on a narrow road. If they're kicking and screaming on their way there. You know how many times my kids are irrational as all get out because they're toddlers. I say, don't jump off the bed. They jump off the bed, and what happens? They slam their head and get hurt. And then they get mad at me the next time I tell them, don't get on the bed. And they say, how, how could you be so mean to us? How could you do this to us? You always say no. Toddlers, anyone? And they don't realize my no is their protection. But they're toddlers, so they don't get it. We need fathers and mothers to stand up, get them back on the narrow road. No matter how offended they are, kicking, screaming, punching you, spitting at you, leaving their church, you keep saying it. 
You just keep saying it. You just keep saying it because I promise at least a few of them will say, you know what? I need to get on this road. So he's called a rock of offense. It actually says, I know Matthew 9, we're going to get there. It actually says in Luke 12, he said, I came to send fire on the earth. This was Kaylee's and Chathan's experience last night. How I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose I came to give peace, which is harmony on earth? Listen, these are the red letters of Jesus. He says, I tell you not at all. Rather, division. Nice. Red letters, Luke 12, 49 through 53. Listen, from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father would divide it against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Red letters of Jesus. I'm gonna split families right down the middle. Now, here's what I'm saying. I believe that in God, he works all things together of the good of those that are called and love him and called according to his purpose. So raise your hand again if you're believing for your families to get saved. Okay, this is how God works. God will divide one out, you. And you'll offend your whole family. And your whole family will think you're crazy and you'll bring them to church and they'll hear me and think you're even more crazy. Right, And this is the story of our family, of the Lord. My uncle Benny got saved and everyone thought he was weird. My dad would tell you, I didn't know what was happening. My brother, he went to a Catherine Coleman meeting. He came back, he walked like her, talked like her. We thought he was crazy. But he would pray in his room and my dad would say, when I'd walk into the room, I felt something in there. But my grandfather, he's a leader in the Greek Orthodox Church, believing they're Christians, but without the new birth experience. And, and, and the family and, the, and my grandparents, in a way, shun my uncle, and, and, he's, and he's sneaking around, loving Jesus. He starts preaching. The brothers start getting saved secretly. My dad would tell you, he secretly got saved with, my, with his brother, Pastor Benny, and the, uh, the Lord's face showed up between them. And so he starts holding services, and the Lord moves in power and does what God has always done through him. But my grandfather said, listen, if you preach, you're done. You're out of here. And so one service, grandfather and grandmother show up to the service and they sit in the back and my uncle does what he does. He preaches and he can't look their direction. He's nervous to look their direction. So he said after service, he said service was over. They kind of just left and he said, I, I waited till two in the morning to go home because I knew once I get there, I'll be probably asked to leave and he gets to the house and the lights are still on. And my grandparents are waiting in the living room, crying, and they ask him to come sit down. He's nervous. And they, my, my grandfather says, I didn't see my son up there, but I saw the Lord. And we want to know that Jesus, you know, and they give their lives to Jesus. Listen, here's how God works. And now my grandmother became, listen, more anointed than every single one of us put together. Can ask. 4'10", little Arabic lady, barely spoke English. And when she did, she sounded exactly like Yoda. And she would prophesy to you in Arabic. Listen, my grandmother, I remember one time, they built her a home where everything was short. It was like a little playhouse. And, and, she, yeah, and she'd cook and she'd make pain, you know, noises because ah, she's in pain and an old woman. And she would turn around and all the pain is gone all of a sudden. And she prophesies over me in Arabic. I don't understand not a one word she's saying. And I'm sliding down a fridge 
And every single thing we are experiencing as resonation, my grandmother prophesied. It was, she was so profoundly anointed, listen, so profoundly anointed that any decision I had to make growing up, true story, I would tell my dad, ask Tata, it's grandma, ask Tata to pray and tell me what to do. And she would always say the same thing. I pray three days, I call you, tell you. <laughs> and she would either go, it's the devil or it's God. It's how she talked. She's very intense. She just didn't care what anybody thought. And no matter how big of ministry person came into her house that Benny would bring, if she didn't like him, she'd tell him to get out. <laughs> she would say, if somebody says, dear Lord, when they're praying and I don't feel the presence, I don't listen. <laughs> what a beast. I miss her so much. She'd say, if they say, dear Lord, and I feel the presence, I listen. We need that again. The barometer, is God here? Nah, <laughs> oh, Tata. She got even more intense as she got older. But my Uncle Benny would go to her and the same thing, but he first had to find one, just one willing. So God will separate one out and you'll have to deal with the friction and the offense. Why? Because Jesus is a rock of offense. But it's unto, listen, he pulls a remnant out, not because they're special and elite. He pulls a remnant out for everybody that's not a part of the remnant. And he gives an example, and you have to be willing to deal with the friction and the fire and the offense. And he says, there's a baptism that I have to be baptized with. And Jesus had to be separated out alone on a tree, dealing with the friction of his beard being pulled out men spitting on his face, he gave his back so they could beat him. And it says that you are the joy set before him. Do you consider the men that are beating him, he's thinking to himself, I'm dying for you and you're the joy that's set before me. You have no idea what you're doing. So much so as he lifts his body up on a tree after hanging there for six hours, every time he'd have to lift it up so he could take a breath, he musters up words that say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And this rock of offense stood in the gap. The book of Ezekiel says, I sought a man who would stand in the gap and I found no one. So listen, God becomes a man and he throws himself into that gap. And then he invites a generation, throw yourself into the gap with me. Throw yourself into the gap with me on behalf of your church. Throw yourself in the gap with me on behalf of your family. If I get one, I'll get the whole house. Are you willing to be that one? So my prophecy to you is that your families are gonna get saved in Jesus' name. So this side of the Lord, and I'm almost done. If I could have, uh, if I could have the team come. This side of the Lord is one that flips tables and my ask of him this weekend is that he would come and flip tables. That he would come with his whip in this room. Come on, let's invite it. Just start swinging that thing. Getting out what doesn't belong so that we can see the glory of God hit the earth. You know, he comes to Hezekiah and he says to Hezekiah, he says, he says, Hezekiah, I want you to go into the most holy place and I want you to get all the debris out of it. All the stuff that's collected in there gotten about everything else other than my cloud of glory, I want you to get it out. And I'm asking the Lord for a Hezekiah moment in Franklin, Tennessee, that we as a body wouldn't just have another conference and meeting, but we would come and say, let's get the debris out together. And let's start with us. Let's start with our own hearts. So Matthew 9, 
Are you guys there? Okay, one person's there. You guys alive? You awake? Do you drink coffee? You're making this difficult. Are you there? Did you open your Bible? Anyone ever read their Bible before? It's a bestseller. It's literally the greatest book on the earth. You should read it more than once a week on Sunday. Okay, so (laughs) Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus, listen, went throughout all the cities. Everyone say all. The Bible doesn't just put random stuff in it. He went to every city, all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, the gospel of the kingdom. He's bringing his whole world here, guys. And he's healing every, everyone say every. Every disease and every affliction, say every. It's intentional. You got all and you got every. Every disease, every affliction. Now listen, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now, we have made that like a staple verse for evangelism, and I think that that's good, and I think we need it, right? And and I would encourage you in in the break between now and the afternoon, go out there and tell somebody about this this Lord. Tell somebody about this life, the scriptures tell us. What, What could happen if we just start seeing people flood this room tonight? that you found in Starbucks and you can come up with a testimony if they got healed in front of everybody in Starbucks. Like, let's live out this life. I am all for that and I want you to do it. And I believe God's taking us from power evangelism to presence-driven evangelism. Where you just, you don't have to worry about the tactics, just bring God in. Just walk with him into Starbucks and I promise Starbucks will be different, right? But we've made this a staple verse for evangelism of we need more laborers out on the harvest. But the context, everyone say context. Context really matters when you read the scriptures. The context is, is he's going to synagogues. In our language, that would be the context is, is he's attending the religious system of the church. He's healing all of them. He's restoring all of them, but he's attending church and what he's seeing in the synagogues that he never started. You never see a command in scripture where the Lord is commanding them to build synagogues. Synagogues was the tradition of men. We're gonna see it in a second. The tradition of men of what they started. And and everywhere in scripture, it is clear to identify that Jesus went to their synagogue. It never says he went to his synagogue. It never says he went to his house. No, no. He went to their synagogue to teach in their synagogues. And he walks into this synagogue and he sees people harassed. Listen, the Amplified says it like this. There were synagogues everywhere and he went to all of them, but people were bewildered, dejected, and helpless. And he's looking at those that would claim to know God. You're talking about the Jewish people, the Israelites, Those that claim to know God and what he's seeing is he's seeing a lot of churches on every corner, all the cities, all the villages. He has compassion, he's moving, people are getting healed. But what he sees is a bunch of places that have sheep without shepherds. Now here's a little bit about synagogue. And so you gotta understand the harvest is plentiful. It's talking, there's a, the context is he's talking about his house. He's talking about his church. The laborers are the shepherds. Shepherds that are gonna bring people out of a synagogue system. 
Here's a, just some history about synagogues in context. Listen, they're Jewish religious institutions. Now, word's important. They are, they are identified as institutions. That's what we have. So we have a lot of institutions. That began after the Israelites returned from the exile of Babylon. Ezra, the priest in Nehemiah 8, started a movement, listen, that led to the synagogue system. They were intended for the reading of the law or teaching of the Torah and community. I want you to hear this. Synagogues were primarily, when you study the the model of a synagogue, it's good. It's for teaching. It was for the reading of the Torah and it was for the building of community. Those that read the Torah or the rabbis, they would sit in a seat called the Moses seat or the seat of honor like, you know, celebrity leaders today. They were the big head guy and you don't really hear from anybody else, but, but you hear from them and you got this massive community and it says the primary function of the synagogue is to study and, com- and have community, but you hear no sound of sacrificial worship in synagogues. Not one sound of worship. The name synagogue is literally translated assembly. And this is the key. This wasn't the name given for the temple. The temple was a place for God's presence. I want you to hear me. And the ministry to the Lord. I love what Corey said. It struck me like lightning last night when he said the lost ministry in the church is called God. Ministry to God. But the primary purpose of the temple was it was a place for God. It was a place for God's presence. It was a place for ministry to God, whereas the synagogue was a place for community and learning. The barometer, listen, of success, for a lack of better words, in the temple was, did the cloud come? You guys remember 2 Chronicles chapter 5? It says, they got the temple perfect, exactly like God wanted it. And when they get it just right, they begin to minister to God and a cloud fills the room. And it's so dense, the leaders can't even keep standing to minister in it. That's how you knew that he was pleased as a cloud would come. So many scholars believe, many scholars believe that synagogues date back to Nehemiah chapter eight. Just write this stuff down. It's, it, I'm telling you guys, it's, it's life-changing of how we build After King David died, you see Israel get into a cycle of sin. If you ever read the Old Testament, it's frustrating. It's like one king is aware of his father, David, and loves the Lord. He dies, and then like an eight-year-old takes his place. And the eight-year-old's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but he's kind of good, but then he ends really bad. And then they always start good, and they end horrible, or they just start bad. And, And it's like this cycle. And then there's always one guy that comes, and like, you're all in sin, and there's restoration, but then they just keep falling back. And so you see this cycle of sin and starting well, finishing bad. Finally, listen, the people of Israel are led into Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of the cycles of sin, because they were unwilling to be led by God. The temple David dreamed of, this is years after David is king. Years later, they're led into captivity. What started what they would call the golden era of Israel with King David, and he builds this tabernacle for the Lord those days are long gone. Generations past, cycles of sin come in of generations that didn't know their fathers. You know what that tells me? His fathers didn't pass it on. And the temple, listen, David dreamed of that Solomon built is destroyed. 
and the Ark of the Covenant disappears and the glory is gone. Anyone ever read this? And towards the end of the 70 years, Ezra and Nehemiah are released from Babylon and, and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and gather the children of Israel. In chapter eight, Ezra gets up and he begins to read the law. So, they, so the Babylonian captivity, the, the Lord comes upon the prince of Persia. He allows some of them to go back and start rebuilding the temple. They get back to a city. Walls are destroyed. The temple's destroyed. There's no more Ark of the Covenant. And they begin to rebuild the city. And Ezra gets up in chapter eight and he begins to read the law like they found uh, the Torah laying around somewhere and he picks it up and he opens it and he begins to read the law. And it says in the morning, it was in the morning on the Sabbath and it ended about noonday, a lot like we have church today. And when he gets up to read it, it says the people wept and they repented. So the tradition began that every Sabbath, every week, the priest would get up and he would read the Torah and the people would weep and the people would gather and some people would be excited. And this would begin what many callers say, the arise of synagogues. That synag the tradition of men began dating back to the days of Nehemiah. And it was a place again of reading of the Torah and just having community. And this gave way to the tradition. And now I want you to understand, synagogues were a result. Everyone say result. They were a result of the loss of glory and the destruction of the temple. Synagogues pop up because they lost the glory. Synagogues pop up because they lost the cloud that was in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant hasn't been found since. Here's what's crazy is even when they rebuilt the second temple, which Solomon's was the first and in 516 BC, they still hadn't found or gotten back the Ark of the Covenant. So the most holy place in the second temple is empty. I want you to hear this. So you gotta think the days that Jesus is walking around the earth, he's looking at a giant facade with no glory inside of it. And he knows the holy place is empty because the holy place is here now. So the most holy place is empty. So you have giant facades it looked the same. It, it probably, from the outside, you probably couldn't tell a difference. But in the deepest part, no one could see. It was empty and without glory. Kind of like today, we have massive structures that look glorious, but you can't find them inside of them. Jesus makes a point. I would go into their synagogues. And again, I want you to understand, they're not bad. They were good places, good places of learning community just not sacrificial worship and no cloud. My dad makes this statement. I believe the enemy has used religion and religious institutions to keep us from the real church. And if the enemy, listen, can take the structure, the institution of the church, give it a synagogue system of model, but just put church on the outside. He's one. If we can just operate and make it about, hey guys, let's, we're all about the people. Oh God, don't be all about the people. Be all about God. That's what the people need. We're all about the people. We want to disciple. Well, be very careful that you don't disciple people devoid of God's presence because you can only take them so far with your life coach lessons. 
They're gonna keep needing therapy. And we have giant churches that are giant therapy centers today with band-aids and the pastors are handing out me a spore and they don't wanna be too offensive. Make it easy, simple, quick. Good places, happy places, places of community, but sacrificial worship not heard. So you get to Acts 15 and the Lord comes and he speaks. And he says, I'm gonna rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, which is the place of glory and ministry to the Lord. And I'm gonna, as you stand to your feet, wanna repeat something Corey said. First Chronicles chapter 13, because I want you to see there is this stark difference between synagogues and the temple that God is relooking, looking to rebuild in the earth. And I'm not just talking about who we are individually. I know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but guys, what's gonna happen when we come together as the temple of God in the earth? What's gonna happen in rooms on Sunday mornings? People walk in and think they're just gonna get their fix with their donuts and coffee and the Lord smashes them. Anybody believe we need reformation in the church? Raise your hand. Anyone want it? Hungry for it? Okay. First Chronicles 13, David finally, finally takes the kingdom. And he stands up. I like thinking of it as like his state of the union. And he stands up and he's about to give his plans for the nation. He's about to tell the nation about what we're gonna do and the strategy. And he didn't talk about the military. He didn't talk about the economy. He stands up in 1 Chronicles 13 and he makes his profound statement. He says, we didn't go after the presence in the days of Saul, but we're going after it now. And he says, we're gonna go get the ark and we're gonna bring it into our city. And I'm, I'm here to, to prophesy that the heart desire of habitation is we're gonna go get the ark and we're gonna bring it into this city. And we're looking, listen, for shoulders that we can put it on. But David had the right desire, wrong method. And so, Corey, we heard it last night, they get the new cart, which they learned that from the Philistines. In other words, they use the world's methods to think that that would win somehow work in the church, kind of like we do today. We, we play secular music for our youth groups because we think it's gonna get them in. They need the presence of Jesus, believe it or not. Christian rappers, they just look like the world, man. They sound like the world, talk like the world. We got people on social media and singers that you can't tell the difference in their life. And no one's saying anything, but we're all just worshiping to it. And it's not about God, it's about them. It's not about building the house of the Lord, it's about building their brand. He stands up and he says, I want the presence of God. He goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant, he puts it on a cart and says, they worshiped with all of their might. I mean, these people are worshiping God. The ark is falling on a cart. And Uzzah, listen, the cart begins to stumble at the threshing floor. The threshing floor is the symbolism of judgment. It gets to judgment, God tests it. I believe this is what he's doing in my heart. You know, when we started here, the Lord says to me, he said, one of the biggest works I'm gonna do here is your heart, my son. I believe that God wants to build something great, but I think the best place we can stay is the biggest work he's always doing in my life is me. 
And it comes to this place of judgment and the, the ark begins to shake. I think this is what he did to us in Dallas. Right after September, this outpouring takes place and we went through a hard season as a church, just me personally. And I think God was coming to shake it. It says, our work will be tested by fire. And he begins to shake it and, and Uzzah puts his hand out. He's a good man. He touches the ark, drops dead. David is offended. He's confused. God's, God loves the desire of David, but he's testing his work. We can scream desire all day, but guys, we've got to put it to work. And so he, he drops dead. David is confused, scared out of his mind, sends the ark to the house of Obi-Edom for three months. And Obi-Edom hosts God's glory in living rooms, which is another thing we're going to do here. We're going to build houses for the Lord. And we're going to come together once a week on a Sunday night and celebrate what God's doing at homes. But they host the presence of the Lord in living rooms. Obi-Edom is blessed and David starts getting smart. Chapter 15, he comes back and he tells the people, the children of Israel, he says, listen, we didn't inquire of God of what he wanted and how he wanted it. In other words, we gave strategy. We came up with the plans and we told God what he was gonna do. And David says, we didn't, because we didn't follow the proper order, everyone say order. Order, listen, glory comes after order in scripture. So David, David realizes I was out of order. Good desire out of order. And it's, he takes the ark, the Lord must have told him because he takes the ark off of the cart and he puts it on the shoulders of a priesthood. Now listen, one guy touches the ark and he drops dead, but now a whole community of priests are carrying the ark and nobody's dying. You know why? Because one man can't carry the glory. It's got to land on a whole generation. We need to be delivered from Moseses and celebrity leaders and pastors. And we need leaders that father, that raise sons and daughters that go take it to a place I never could. So a community of priests puts the ark on their shoulders and they begin to walk. We heard last night, every six steps, they stop and they sacrifice and worship. So they went from quick and easy on the cart to slow and sacrificial. And this is what we need in this hour, quick and easy church to be turned into slow and sacrificial again. They take the ark off of the cart, they put it on the shoulders of the priests. Another major change they did, and I can't, don't have time to go through all of them, is they went from worshiping with all their might. It probably sounded incredible. Imagine a million people worshiping with all their might around a box of glory walking into a city. It was probably goosebumps all day, but it wasn't the proper order. I love this. In chapter 15, it says, and I want every, if you're a worship leader or you believe God's calling you to that, can you lift your hand really quick? Lift your hand. Man, God is raising worshipers. I want you guys to listen closely. He comes to David and they go from worshiping with all their might to it says, David found a skillful leader. Now that word skillful in Hebrew doesn't mean the most talented. That word skillful doesn't mean the best guitar player and drummer. That word skillful means discerning in Hebrew. In other words, he went and he found worshipers that nobody likes. Didn't just get through a set list, but they're actually interested in what moves God. And in chapter 15, they begin to dance the glory of God into the city. And David throws out every schematic. What I love so much about his life is he puts on, this crazy man 
puts on a linen ephod and sacrifices the Lord. Do you realize that that was only for the Levites and David's of the tribe of Judah? Do you know that a book before this, Saul died for doing the very thing? But David, because he's got God's heart and desire, he gets away with stuff. We never think about this, but this man is operating like a priest and he wasn't even of the line of the priests. He didn't follow any of the schematics that Moses put in place. Nothing. This crazy man takes the Ark of the Covenant and throws a tent up in the wilderness and puts it under him. There's no outer court, inner court. There's no candlestick, table of showbread, just the tent and just the glory. And God goes, I like that one. I like the one where it's not as pretty, but it's real. Man, it it may not sound as good, but I like that one. So Acts 15, he said, I'm not raising the, the, the temple of Solomon. That would have been beautiful. I'm not looking for the tabernacle of Moses. That would have been perfect. I'm looking for the tabernacle of David. The one where the tent was just thrown up and and David hires 10,000 people on his own dime, surrounds them around the ark and says, sing songs to God. So I promise this is where I'm ending. You read about about seven Old Testament revivals and reformation that had to do with the restoration of David's tabernacle. And if you hear anything today, I believe that the Lord is taking out of us, taking us out of a synagogue model and he's bringing us back into the temple, back into the place where it's first and foremost about God. And we leave church on Sundays going, did he come? You see it with Mary and Martha. If you ask Martha how church was, she would have said 53 people got baptized. 100 people, 150 people showed up. It was great. The turnout was there. If you ask Mary, she would say, I have no idea. I sat at his feet the whole time. Man. So listen to this. In 1 Chronicles 9, 33, well, it's really 1 Chronicles 9 through 16 chapter. But David provides financial support as measured by a day's work so that singers and musicians could minister before the Lord as a full-time occupation in 1 Chronicles 16, 37. And they would be free from all other duties being daily employed in that work. This, this practically looks like in church today, there wasn't, you, you have the admin people, but the biggest part of the staff was to sing songs to God. In 1 Chronicles 9.33, these are the singers who lodged in the chambers and they were free from all other duties for they were employed to sing to the Lord and play instruments to him day and night. David established 4,000 musicians. Guys, listen, 4,000 musicians. I want you to think about the zeal of this man. 288 singers and 4,000 gatekeepers. 4,000 people and all they did was watch the gate. And he financed personally 10,000 people as his full-time staff to facilitate worship and offerings to God. 
It says it here in 1 Chronicles 23, 5 through 7. So the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord. Listen, their instruction was called songs of God. All who were skillful were 288. There's the numbers. 4,000 gatekeepers and 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which David made. And he said, for giving praise, David made enough instruments for 4,000 musicians. Who is this man? And on top of that, just wrote Psalms. Like, what, what is it about this guy? So David commands the people to honor the heavenly order of worship that he received by revelation. Solomon established singers about 970 BC according to the command. I want you to see this pattern in scripture according to the command that God gave David. When Israel went astray, God raised up spiritual reformers with a vision to restore worship as David commanded it. All seven revivals in the Old Testament times were based around the restoration of Davidic worship. You know, I feel the Lord. Jehoshaphat's reform about 870 BC included reestablishing singers and musicians. Second Chronicles 20, 19 through 28, the Levites stood up to praise the Lord. This is generations after David's gone. I want you to think about this impact this man had for generations. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord. They came with stringed instruments to the house of the Lord. Jehoiada, the high priest, restored temple worship. This is 837 BC. This is years, hundreds of years later after David. And he restored temple worship with singers and musicians according to the order of David and enthroned King Joash, which was only, listen, seven years old. Second Chronicles 23, 18. He appointed Levites with the singing according to the order of David. Hezekiah's revival about 725 BC included restoring singers and musicians at David's command. In Hezekiah's revival, there's one scripture that says, Hezekiah went and he pulled out the old instruments that David had built. He dusts the, he gets all the dust off of the instruments and gives them back to Levites and says, start singing songs to God again. It goes on. Second Chronicles 29, 25 to 27. This is Hezekiah. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with string instruments. Hey, play that thing, Micah. Micah, play that thing. With string instruments. Because I want you to hear something. I want you to hear something. You'll feel the Lord immediately. Watch. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with stringed instruments according to the order of David. David figured out what God liked. He figured out the sounds God liked. And listen, it says the song of the Lord began. I want the song of the Lord to begin today. Listen, Josiah's revival about 625 BC restored full-time singers and musicians according to the order of David. Zerubbabel established full-time singers and musicians according to the order of David. Man. Ezra and Nehemiah established full-time singers and musicians according to the order of David. 
Acts 15, God goes, I want a temple again, according to the order of David. And I believe that Davidic worship is about to rise up, listen, like we have never heard. Guys, we have the greatest sound systems that you could ever imagine today. They didn't even have sound systems, but they found the song of the Lord. What's gonna happen when we start putting it through amplifiers in cities, guys? You think God just gave us this technology for no reason to build our, our influence and empires? No, no, no. God is giving us these things because the song of the Lord is about to arise throughout the earth. And it's gonna come through a bunch of worshipers who know how to tend to God's heart. And I have news for you. You don't have to be a good singer to be a worshiper. You just have to know how to move him. My dad would say growing up, he'd always say, listen, if you can't sing, but you're anointed, if you just learn how to be anointed for the Lord, he said, you can bang on pots and pans and God will walk into a room. We have the best sound, listen, in our generation you've ever heard and the least anointing. And we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to come back. But you know what it starts with is Levites taking their place. And I have news, it's not just a few singers and musicians. The, the scriptures tell us in Revelation 5 that we are all a kingdom, come on, of kings and priests unto the Lord. And there's an invitation for a whole generation to join into Davidic worship. And let's begin to build the tabernacle of David in Franklin, Tennessee, and in Dallas, Texas, and in Chicago, Illinois, and from city to city. Listen, from church to church, it's not just happening here. There is people in the earth communities like Upper Room, and I honor Upper Room in Dallas. It doesn't matter if there's no one in the room or 500 in the room, these young people sing to God. And you feel it walking by the building. So come on, let's lift our hands. God, I pray that the priests begin to arise. The Lord wants to put a garment on you today. The Lord is calling out even worship leaders today, stuck in systems. Come on, come out of the system and put on a new garment. Come on, come out of the system and put on a new garment. It's time to put on our priestly robes and allow the song of the Lord to begin. What if I didn't need to lead you into his presence, but we all went together? What if we learn how to walk into rooms and tend to God where the cloud would come again? I don't wanna just read about it in the Azusa Street Revival. Man, young kids in Azusa Street would play hide and go seek in the glory cloud. Today we need fog machines. No, no, no fog machines here. We want the real cloud of glory to fill rooms again, come on. If you're hungry, lift your hands. And I want you to close your eyes. I want you to forget who's around you. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to clothe you with the Levitical call. Come on, clothe you with the Davidic call. And I want you to begin to put words and song on your mouth. David said, I want you to sing to God. Forget what you sound like, just sing to God. I hope you guys enjoyed this message today. If you are interested in following us or learning about what cities we're going to be in with Habitation, please visit us at habitationministries.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that God touched your life and drew you closer to Him.